for your grace and your mercy upon us. We thank you for our church. We pray again that you would direct us and that this vision would be your vision. Uh, Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to see with your eyes, Lord Jesus. Open our hearts to you during this vision series. That's our prayer. For Christ's sake, for his reputation. Amen. This week I came across an interesting article which uncovered a curious fact about our society, and it's this. We like workout clothing more than we like working out. The size of the market for what they call athleisure, uh, a term officially adopted into Merriam-Webster's lexicon last year, has grown 5% each year for the last five years from $54 billion to $68 billion. Uh, the trend accounted for nearly all growth in the apparel, footwear, and accessories sector during that period. People in American cities are wearing fancy athletic clothing with brand names like Lululemon, Lucy, Lorna Jane, Gap, Body, Athleta, and Nike everywhere, including to work and to the office. According to an article in the New York Times, uh, the market may hit... Hopefully that's okay for this this, uh, sermon. If not, you can let me know. Uh, the, The market may hit $100 billion soon. Uh, but there's a strange twist in the growth of, uh, this, of athleisure. Most people are just wearing it, not actually working out. Uh, the same article continues, For many wearers, the athletic part of athleisure remains aspirational. <laughs> aspirational. Apparently, we like the workout look. We just don't like the workout lifestyle or the workout practices. My concern, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is that for many people, uh, calling themselves a Christian is aspirational. Uh, They like the Christian label, uh, they just don't like the Christian lifestyle or Christian practices. You see, there's a rampant misunderstanding in the church today, and it is this, that somehow uh, you can be a Christian without following Jesus. Somehow you can be a Christian without following Jesus. It's just not true. But yet it is a major problem today. Spiritual formation author, the late Dallas Willard, said it this way. In today's church, we've not only been saved by grace, we've been paralyzed by it. In other words, grace makes us passive. Uh, We have this misunderstanding that because we've been forgiven, we don't need to do anything anymore. So we don't. So here's what we've done. We've taken the great doctrine of justification by faith. And then we've led people to believe that they don't really need to follow Jesus to be Christians. That's really sad. Because the point of our justification is not that that would be the finish line. Instead, our justification is supposed to be the starting line in a journey of following Christ. Let me just say that again. The point of our justification is not that it would be the finish line. It's that it would be the starting line in a journey of following Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And so that's what this message is about today, growing in our discipleship. We're in our vision series. Last week, we laid the foundation for our vision, and we made the point that what we want to be about as a church and as followers of Jesus is expanding the table for the glory of God. Uh, But the question today is, how do we accomplish that? How do we actually glorify 
God? Well, Jesus actually answered that question when he said this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so it's in making disciples that God is glorified, and so that's our mission to make disciples. And so for the next three Sundays in our vision series, we're going to talk about what that means to make disciples. And we're going to use three key words, the words grow, connect, and act. Grow, connect, and act. And today's message is all about that word grow. And if you'd like to join me in your Bibles, I'll be in the gospel of Luke chapter 14 once again. Last time we saw in the gospel of Luke chapter 14 that there was this great banquet as Jesus told that famous parable. Today, I would like to read to you the rest of the chapter in Luke chapter 14. I'll also have the words on the screen for you because the rest of that chapter is about discipleship. And so let's pick it up with verse 25. If you're ready, say amen. It says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So here we have this famous teaching by Jesus about what it means to be his follower or his apprentice or, to use the biblical word, his disciple. And here we have a setting where there's this large crowd. But Jesus doesn't look at that crowd and go, oh, great, look at all these people. Why don't you come back next week and bring a friend? No, he looks at them, and actually, he gets skeptical. He goes, I'm not sure you guys really should all be here. Are you sure you're in the right room? He said, are you sure you really want to follow me? If you do, you're going to have to be willing to die. Look at verse 26. It might be, if you choose to follow me, that you would would lose family members, and they would disown you. You might never see your family again if you choose to follow me. It might be, you see those crosses over there on the hill? It might be that you, like me, would need to die on one of those crosses. Are you sure you're up for this? Then he goes on in verse 28 to give an illustration. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Listen, if you're going to build something, if you're going to put an addition on your house, or you're going to construct something, or renovate your kitchen, or you're going to do something at home, you're going to sit down with a pen and a paper and a calculator, and you're going to go, okay, do we have enough money to do this, right? So Jesus says, that's kind of what it's like when it comes to following me. You've got to first sit down and count the cost. Because I don't want you to start with me and then leave halfway going, oh, I didn't really realize what this was really all about. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. We got to be honest. As a church with people who want to follow Jesus, we got to be honest, especially with, with, with young people, about the cost of following Jesus. But with everyone, really, we got to say, hey, you, if you follow Jesus, that may not be easy for you. You might lose some friends. Uh, you may not be uh, popular if you choose to follow Jesus. Uh, if you are comfortable in this world, I guarantee you, you will be uncomfortable following Jesus. Jesus has to be most important. Then he goes, he goes on to give a second illustration in verse 31. Take a look. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. 
Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So you got the tower analogy, right? Here he gives a war analogy. You, You don't go to war and then decide... After you've made the decision to go to war, you don't decide halfway through, you know, I really shouldn't have started this war in the first place. But you got to think about that ahead of time. I I love this war analogy because we've forgotten that we are in the middle of a spiritual war. It's a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says um, there's a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But if we forget that, when it gets really hard, because it will, we will begin to complain, going, man, I... I thought this was going to be easy. I thought following Jesus was going to be comfortable instead of full of difficulties and trials and sufferings, just like Jesus said it was going to be for his disciples. He said, it's like war. I remember talking to my father about his service in the jungles of Vietnam and how intense that was for him and just horrific at times. And he said, you know, Dave, however scared you can ever imagine being, that's how scary it is. But can you imagine if a soldier was in the middle of a battle and he comes running to the commanding officer going, man, you're not going to believe what's going on out there. They're shooting at me. There's guns and stuff. That guy had an M16. There's like grenade stuff's blowing up. There's tanks. And the the commanding officer said, what did you expect? This is the army. You're at war. Jesus says, friends, just like that in the Christian life, That's the kind of expectation we need to get straight before we decide that we're going to follow Jesus. It's not easy. And then he says this in verse 34. Salt is good. So I'm really glad that Jesus agrees with the fact that salt is good there, aren't you? Salt is good. Amen, Lord. Thank you. But I'm kidding. But, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it its saltiness be restored. It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's, here's what he's saying. If, if you have a pile of salt with no flavor, what are you going to do with that? If you throw it on the dirt, it's going to mess up the dirt. It's not even good enough for the manure pile. You throw it in there, it's going to ruin, ruin the manure pile. I mean, you realize what he's saying? If you're not willing to go all in with me, if you're not willing to go all the way with me to really live this Christian life, to build that tower, like I said, or to go to war, like I said, then I don't really know what to do with you, Jesus says. I can't even throw you on the dirt. I mean, the soil is good. It makes things grow, right? But you're going to ruin it if you throw a bunch of salt on there. He says you can't even put it on manure You'll ruin that too. Do you realize what he just said? Francis Chan says in his book, Crazy Love, wow, how would you like to hear the Son of God say, you would ruin manure? (laughs) In other words, if I got a big pile of manure and you're on top of there, I got to say, get off, you're ruining my manure. See, here's the problem in a lot of churches today. We want a big crowd We want a lot of salt, even if it's not salty. 
But Jesus says when he saw the big crowd, he said, I'm not too sure I have a whole lot of use for many of you. Because you got this half committed thing going on. And you don't really want to be my disciple. And that's a big problem. The main goal of the church is to make disciples. If we fail at that, we've missed something really huge. We don't want to do lots of other stuff well and miss this, right? C.S. Lewis said this about the church. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, and sermons are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Now when he says little Christ, don't misunderstand. It's not that we become like gods or something like that. What he means is that we're formed into the image of of Christ, that's what the word Christian means, actually, little Christ, that we, there's this process of sanctification, a growing in holiness, that we would be morphed, transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says, for example, in Galatians 4, he says, I am in labor pains for you, my church, until Christ is formed in you. But if we're not doing that as a church, then what's the point? In other words, we're, making our, we're wasting our time if we're not making disciples. Making disciples is not just one of the things we do. It's the only thing we do. Making the disciples is not just one thing we do among many things. It is the thing we do as a church. That's our mission. Let me put it this way. If I was a shoe manufacturer and I owned a shoe company and I go down on the manufacturing floor and I find somebody making something other than shoes, I'm going to be upset because I would think that's a waste of time. Just like that, that's not our purpose here to do anything else except make disciples. Everything we do should be filtered through that purpose. That's how we must define success around here. Our success must be defined in terms of our success in making disciples. I emphasize that because there's some people who attend church who are really not that clear about the fact that we are here to make disciples. Maybe they're here for other reasons, to be entertained or to have some felt need that's going to be met or because it's just a social outlet or... You know, there's a church softball team or whatever it is. They're just here for other reasons. But it's not for the purpose of making disciples. Now, there's nothing wrong with those other things per se. But if we're not engaged in the primary work of making disciples, we are missing the mark. A few weeks ago, some of our staff went to go see Pastor Andy Stanley speak. And he said this. Let me give you an example. Let's say you hit your budget this year and uh, your attendance grows and you have a bunch of other great things going on at your church, but only 20% of your church folks have any kind of intentional discipleship process going on in their lives, you have failed in terms of 80% of your church. Does that make sense? Because the purpose is not just to hit our budget or to grow our numbers. And this is where sometimes I think larger churches miss it. They become more concerned about attendance than they are about attenders. They focus more on the empty seats than they do on the full seats. So we have created this vision to kind of shift and begin to ask different questions. Underneath of our vision, we we crafted over the last few months three different priority statements. A priority statement is just basically a, a statement about how you would accomplish that vision. And then under each priority statement, we have three separate strategies. And we're going to talk about those throughout the series. But today, I just want to talk about that first priority statement. And it's all about this word grow, which is the topic for today. So here's our priority statement. I'll put it on the screen. In the next three years, we want to see 
100% of members and regular attenders engaged in one or more of our varied and vibrant spiritual growth or service ministries. There's our priority. So we want to ask, you know, what percentage of our body is serving? What percentage of our body is giving? What percentage of our body is engaged in a discipleship process here at Millington? And underneath of this, we have three strategies. Let me just give you the first one. Strategy one is this, that we would grow wider in our number of those committed to serve by creating a culture with an abundance of volunteers for each ministry program. If you're a ministry leader today, uh, you think, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if we had an abundance of ministry volunteers for our program that we're headed, right? Heading. Now, allow me just to affirm something. Recently, we had a community-wide Easter egg hunt, and we actually had that day an abundance of volunteers. And so we just want to appreciate you as a church. It was an awesome day, and so many people came out to serve, and it was a true blessing to our community. Really good. But here's why this is biblical. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says this, And he, that is Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now let me share with you something that was a revelation to me as a young Christian. And I think it might be a revelation to some of you as well. It is this. You are the ministers of the church. Take a look at that verse. You may have never thought of yourself as a minister, but that's what the Bible says you are. I think somewhere along the line, like 50 years ago, we got this idea that we would just hire a minister and then that person would do all the ministry. But that's not biblical. Pastors can't do it all, and even if we could do it all, it wouldn't be good for you if we did it all because you would miss out on the joy of serving. And so our job as pastors is actually to equip you to make you effective for ministry. We're here to teach you, to train you, to equip you, to release you into ministry, to make a difference, and then to get out of your way. The church has never been about one person doing everything. The metaphor for the church in the New Testament is a body, and every single part of the body is critical. And has a specific function and a specific role, including you, for the health of the body. And so as pastors, this is a huge challenge for us, Pastor Bob and I. And the challenge is this. I'll put it on the screen. How do we start transforming a church from a group of spectators being led by their ministers to a group of ministers being equipped by their pastors? That's what keeps me up at night. Because a mature believer, a disciple, is someone who is ministering, who is serving I say that because I hear so many Christians complain and they say, well, you know, pastor, I'm just not being spiritually fed. But a mature believer would never make a statement like that. A mature believer is a self-feeder. A number of years ago, we did a study in our church called Reveal. It was a spiritual survey where we as a church took this, and it's a research study they conducted on Millington anonymously, Uh, to determine the effectiveness of our programs to produce spiritual maturity. And it's an evaluation tool that many churches have used. And so what this study asked were diagnostic questions, and then they placed people in these four categories in terms of spiritual growth on this continuum. So let's say this line at the bottom of the screen represents your journey in the Christian faith. And the cross there represents the day that you accepted Jesus as your Savior. And then as you grow, you move along that arrow, you move along that line, And you continue to grow. The first category uh, in church are people who are exploring Christianity. Uh, They're not Christians yet. There was about 2% of our population. uh, Folks who would say, you know, I I think I believe in God. I'm not really totally sure about Jesus. Uh, My faith is not really a significant part of my life. Uh, These are basically unbelievers 
Now, first you think, wow, that's a lot of unbelievers in our church, but I think it's great. In fact, I think that number should probably go up. We want unbelievers to visit our church and allow them to go down that discovery tunnel and seek God here, right? The second category of people in church, they categorized as growing closer to Jesus. That was about 40% of our church population. They would say, I believe in Jesus and I'm working on kind of what it means to get to know him. Uh, They've expressed faith, but they, they were basically babes in Christ. New believers. The third category were people they called close to Christ, and this represented about 25% of our church population. These people said that they, they feel really close to Jesus. They depend on him daily for guidance. They, they say they walk with him. He's a very significant relationship in their, in their lives. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's the goal. What could get better than that? Close to Christ. Well, there was a fourth category of people. And the fourth category of people uh, they called Christ-centered. That was about 33% of our church population. These people said Christ is everything. They wanted his life to be lived through them. They wanted to die and just let him be everything. And so they were kind of at the top of the spiritual maturity continuum there. Now take a look at the list up there in those four categories. I think those are four pretty fair categories represented in probably every church, including ours. And just ask this question, where am I? Where are you on that spiritual continuum? Now let me go back to that comment about the person who's not being spiritually fed. Somebody in stage one there, they don't even know they're hungry. They don't have an appetite for the things of God. They're not even aware of such a thing as spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. Somebody in category two, well, they are a Christian. They've accepted Christ, but they still need someone else to feed them spiritually. Someone else in category three there is someone who's growing closer to Christ and they are now learning to feed themselves. I got to tell you, frankly, I feel sorry for you if you're riding on my coattails for the rest of the week or Bob's coattails. And based on our study in the word of God, if if this is the only interaction you get with the word of God all week, that's like eating once a week. And so someone in the third category, uh, because some weeks I'm going to be up here and I'm not really going to be clicking. So you're not going to eat at all that week, right? I'm going to preach a stinker and, uh, you know, it's famishing. You've got to learn to feed yourself. Now, someone in category four is not only able to feed themselves, but they're now also, like a parent, able to learn to feed others. See that? And so those are kind of the four stages. Those who are Christ-centered, there was many interesting things about them, but one interesting thing about them in the study was that they found a way to serve God on a weekly basis. And so here's the question. How has God gifted you and how are you using it to serve? This goes for all of us. Now, some of you are already serving and I know that and it's awesome. Let me encourage you, press on. Some of you may feel like maybe you're, you know, you put in your time already, but let me encourage you. There really is no retirement in the body of Christ As long as you draw breath, God wants to continue to use you and have you serve him. And he's got more for you to do. All of us should find a way to serve. Here's why this is so important. As a pastor, whenever people come up to me and they tell me their faith story, how they've grown, every single time, there's always this part of their story when they say, and then they asked me to serve. And then I was sitting over there and they asked me to teach. 
And then there was this time in my life where they asked me to volunteer for this one ministry. And then they asked me to go on a mission trip. And the next thing I knew, I was on this airplane. And I'm going to this place to serve people in Jesus' name. And it was terrifying for me. And they learned to pray for real. And they said, I've never felt so dependent upon God in my whole life. And that's exactly where God wants you, hanging on to him for dear life. Because it's in those moments where you're in over your head, where God uses you. And you go, really? And your faith grows. I just want to remind you of the title of the sermon today. That's how your faith grows. So where is God calling you to serve? He invites you outside of your routine, outside of your comfort zone, outside of your normal day, and he calls you by faith to follow him. Here's the other thing. Here's something I I want to connect together for you. Do you realize, and maybe you've never thought about it in these terms before, that if you're here at church today and enjoying what we do here, that's because somebody before you answered the call to take steps of faith to make this possible? You going over to drop your kids off at the Ed building, you probably think, wow, over there, there's the super Christians over there. No. You know who's over there? People who sat in here like you but saw a need and said, you know, I wish when I was a kid somebody would have invested in my life. And I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know that much about the Bible. But God, this is outside of my comfort zone. And if you're calling, I, I don't even know if I'm ready for this. But I'm just here to say, yes, Lord, here am I. Send me. I will serve. I will give. I will make myself available. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And aren't you glad they said yes? And you look at them and you go, man, those are like the saints or something like that. And they would say, no, no, no. I was afraid. I was a coward. I, I'm nobody. But the one thing I did do was I said yes to God. And then he used it, and I'm just so blessed to be able to serve. Uh, Jesus said, the greatest among you must become a servant. So, that's strategy one. Strategy two is a statement regarding our finances. And so let me read that for you. We want to grow in our stewardship by becoming a fully resourced church. We want to be a fully resourced church. There's so much more that we can do. And here's why this is biblical. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, what? Giver. Here's why this is so important in terms of our growth. Whenever as a pastor I talk to people and they tell me about their spiritual story and how they grew as a Christian... They say, you know when I really grew big time? It was when the the first time I began to get serious about my financial giving to give to the church or some kingdom-oriented ministry. And they say, it was such a big deal the first time I gave financially. And I was like pretty much not happy about taking that first step at first. And I was was scared. But I find out. When I gave for the first time that I couldn't outgive God. I give it with a shovel, he gives it back with a backhoe, and I proved him in this area over and over and over, and he's always been faithful. 
So let me just challenge you to give to God off the top, to be a percentage giver, not an emotional giver, to decide. Pick a time frame that you'd like to try this out. I would just suggest 30 days. Pick a time frame. I say, God, I'm not going to put my confidence in money. I'm going to put my confidence in you. And just watch what would happen in your life. Because here's what's going to happen. Uh, if, if you're not really giving, that tension that you feel right now, that's a faith-growing tension. This is what causes your faith in God to be stretched, to grow. And soon, this giving discipline, this habit, although you might not even smile when you do it at first, later it will become such a part of your story, it will become such a joy to you that you can't imagine your life without it. Here's what Jesus says. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I'm not preaching health and wealth gospel, so don't misunderstand that. But there is great blessing in our generosity. So here's the main point. It's impossible to be a mature disciple without also being a mature steward of your finances. So that's strategy strategy two. Strategy three, the final one is this. We want to grow deeper in our faith by cultivating biblically-based, relationally-driven environments where the spiritual formation process can flourish. Later on in the series, I'm going to do a whole message on the process of spiritual formation. And so hold your questions about that for now. But for now, let me just point out two things about this which are really critical. The first one is that phrase, biblically based. Here's why this is so important. Whenever somebody talks to me about their faith story, whenever somebody tells me about how they grew as a Christian, Every single time, part of their story is, and then I started studying the Bible for the first time. And then I started actually looking into the scriptures. And then I started knowing how to have a handle on the word of God. I started studying the Bible for the first time. And, you know, I used to never read that thing, but then all of a sudden I was like a sponge and I wanted to get into that book. And I said, wow, I had no idea how helpful this book is. And here's the important point. We're not talking about head knowledge here. We're not talking about information. We're talking about transformation. We're talking about heart questions, practical Bible study. There's a big difference. And so when you're, when you're part of one of our groups, uh, please don't take that time to show the rest of the group how smart you are and how much of the Bible you know. Uh, please, on the other hand, lead from a place of weakness and say, wow, this is really convicting. I have a really hard time trusting God in this area of my life. That's what you want to say when you're in those areas. It's not time to show off. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so a practical Bible-based environment is what we want to create here, where we're applying what we learn and finding out how life-changing it is. And so we have those smaller environments here, like our adult education classes, which give us opportunities, financial peace coming up. Uh, to dig into God's word about our finances. BSF meets here Monday nights, women's Bible study, small groups. There's a lot of different areas where you can plug into a Bible-based environment. And so if you feel left out, we have some, some places where you can plug in. Uh, you can check out our website for those opportunities. The second phrase I just want to point out in this strategy is that phrase, relationally driven. Relationally driven. And here's why this is important. Because whenever somebody comes to me as a pastor and shares with me their story of discipleship and shares, this is how I grew, every single time, part of their story is, and then I met this guy. And then this lady was dropped into my life. 
And then we as a family met this other family. And then we as a married couple met this other Christian married couple. And then we met this pastor. And so one of the big faith-building discipleship catalysts are always people. And when you look back and you go, you know, looking back on my life in the sovereignty of God, I feel like it was him who put that person in my life. I feel like God himself dropped this individual in my, I feel like God gave me that group of brothers or God sent me that group of ladies as a gift from him. Like God acted on my behalf to bring them into my life and that just helped me grow. And so that's how we want to accomplish that strategy. Refuse to live the Christian life in isolation. Decide you want to be known When I was in seminary, I've never forgotten the advice that one of my professors, Dr. Howard Hendricks, gave us. He said this, every person in this church today needs three relationships in their life to grow spiritually. We all need a Paul, we need a Barnabas, and we need a Timothy. We all need a Paul. That is, you need an older Christian who's willing to build into your life. You need somebody like that, somebody who's been down the road before, who's willing to share with you their strengths, but not only that, also their weaknesses, their successes, but also their failures, things that they've learned the hard way in life. Somebody who can affirm you, teach you, and encourage you, but somebody also who can correct you at times. Ah, there's the rub. Somebody Somebody like Paul who can be there for you as a mentor. And we all need a Barnabas. Somebody who loves you, but is not impressed by you. Somebody who doesn't care about the degree that you have or how much money that you make. The only thing that impresses them is how you reflect the image of our Savior. Somebody who's willing to keep you honest. Those of you who are married, please don't miss your spouse's role in this regard. We all need somebody to correct us and direct us. And then third, we all need a Timothy. A younger Christian into whose life you are building yours. If you read First and Second Timothy, you see Paul building into his protege. So let me talk to those of you here with a little bit of frost on your hair, or maybe not that much hair left. This is where we need you. This is where your value here is absolutely irreplaceable for us as a church. So many churches, when they talk about growth strategies, they totally disregard the older generation. That's not only disrespectful towards those who have come before, it is also missing this critical mentoring component in church growth. That's not going to be the way it is here if I have anything to do with it. So if you're older, let me challenge you, the younger generation needs you. They want to know what it takes to overcome certain struggles in life. They want to know what it takes to stay married as long as you've stayed married. They want to know what you've learned about church leadership so they can replace you one day and carry forward what you've built into. So let me ask you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to invest in somebody who's a little younger? Do you have the patience for that? Because it will take patience on your part. And you may be the one who needs to start reaching out. Uh, Because the younger person may not have the courage to reach out to you. And lend them your strength for their good. That's part of what it means to expand the table. Uh, That might mean expanding your own table. 
and inviting them to sit with you and learn with you and grow with you. So we all need a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy if we're to be relationally driven. Refuse to live in isolation. Decide to be known. This is how we grow. And we're always growing, all of us. It's a process that goes on for our whole lives. And so as we wrap up the message today, let me just invite you to look at your outline inside of your bulletin and look at these three areas. As a disciple, we are always, always, always growing. We never arrive. And so my question is, how would you rate yourself in those three areas on a scale of one to ten? Go ahead and grab the pencil and the chair in front of you and just give yourself a rating. Nobody else is going to see that. I'm not going to put you on the spot. On a scale of one to ten, let's say ten is Jesus Christ in that area. Nobody put a ten. Okay, and let's say number one means you're not here today. Okay, so nobody put a one. So just go ahead and rate yourself in those three areas on a scale of one to ten. How am I doing in that first category about serving? Where am I serving? Scale of one to ten. How am I doing being a steward of my finances, a biblical steward? Scale of one to ten. How am I doing? Cultivating biblically-based, relationally-driven environments and plugging in in that way and being known by others. Just rate yourself. Some of you just keep on thinking and writing numbers as I continue to talk. Chances are one of those areas is going to be higher and one of those areas is going to be a little lower. Please don't get prideful about the area that's higher. That's only because God has been at work in your life in that area. And please don't get discouraged about the one that's a little lower. That's exciting. That means God is stirring something inside of you and God wants to do a new thing. Philippians chapter one says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm just encouraging you to do is just let's move forward. Let's not just be a church that wears athletic gear. Let's work out. Let's not just wear those clothes. Let's get sweaty. Let's grow. Let's not let the name of Christian Be aspirational. Let's be the real thing. Because if you don't, and here's the thing, if you don't, you'll never know how God would have used you. So would you be willing to serve and give and step up relationally in a new way? By stepping up in these areas, your faith will grow like crazy. Because here's what I know. I can't think of anything more fulfilling in your life than giving him those areas and growing deeper in your faith. God alone satisfies. God alone satisfies. After you allow God access to these areas of your life, he will take what you give him and use it beyond anything you could ever ask or even imagine. And then when you get alone with him, you're going to go, God, wow, you really did use me. That was so exciting and so amazing. And I'm just so full of joy just to be part of your plan. Can you imagine a church that got serious about spiritual growth? Can you imagine a church that was seriously fired up about these areas on the screen? Let's be that church. We have to say with C.T. Studd, no sacrifice can be too great for him who gave his life for me. The goal of our Christian growth and discipleship is not heaven. That's the destination. The goal in growth and discipleship is that Christ would be formed in you. That's the goal. 
is when you think about Jesus Christ and what he did for us, what he did for you, how he left heaven above to come down to earth below. Why did he do that? Why did he serve? Why did he give? Why did he offer himself? Answer for you. And here's what I'm saying. Because Jesus gave his life for you, now you give your life for him. That's discipleship. And we say all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my precious Savior, I surrender all. Let's pray.